sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 9, and then verses 25 through 28. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. Verse 25, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is God's word. Two weeks ago, we were in chapter 39, so we're skipping a lot of narrative in returning to Joseph's story after a Sunday away from me. We'll finish the story next week, but a lot of us know the in-between story, Joseph's brothers going back and forth from home, land of Canaan to Egypt, trying to survive the famine that's referenced there in verse 6, Egypt having all these stores of grain because of Joseph, Joseph the CEO of it all. But when we last saw Joseph two Sundays ago, he was in prison. And so in a very real sense, what you have here in front of you is the original rags to riches story. The whole known world at that time is now bowing before this one who was sold into slavery and then falsely imprisoned. And then he rises to become a kind of savior of the world for his brothers also, their savior, the ones who harmed him. There is foreshadowing of the gospel story in this what kind of savior Jesus will be. What's remarkable about Joseph's treatment of his brothers as you just try to get into the story here, what's remarkable about it is this is coming from a man with power. And I don't know what you think about men with power. Uh, they can often be vindictive. They can often use their power uh, for themselves. So few so few are seemingly really good with power. And Joseph had unprecedented power. If you take all the people who've ever lived who've had power and you consider uh, what Egypt was in that day and time and Joseph's role in Egypt, he had power like few people have ever had 
power. It was incredibly global in its scope. He was the man in the world. But he didn't use that power to settle old scores. And I think we need to, we, we need to be uh, amazed by this. Instead, he displayed here <clears throat> to his brothers more than mere temperance. It's incredible grace. And it stems from such a gracious perspective that he has on all the things he suffered, even grace for those who caused this suffering for him. He even shows concerns for the feelings of his brothers. Did you notice that in verse 5? He says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. You know, don't beat yourselves up. It's God who sent me here ahead of you, and that gets repeated, not just in verse 5, but verse 7. God sent me before you, verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. You always look for things repeated because that's the emphasis. And so the narrative that we skipped between chapter 39 and here, Joseph demonstrated his power. His brothers bowed before him as the dreams said would happen because the dreams were, were prophecies, and that happened in the preceding chapters He's demonstrated his power, and then his brothers in, in their response to that, notably Judah. Judah is the brother who, you remember, has the idea that you know, killing Joseph would be too easy. Let's make him suffer. Let's put him into slavery. Judah, in the preceding chapter to this one, chapter 44, is now willing to sacrifice himself so no more hurt will come to their father Jacob. And that is why we find Joseph at the beginning of chapter 45 here no longer able to contain his emotions. At the beginning of this chapter, this is actually the third time in the story that, that Joseph has, has broken down, only this time he didn't hide it. And it's not just because of, of Judah's offer to sacrifice himself. That's the, uh, the immediate antecedent in chapter 44 as chapter 45 opens here. But it's the mention of how hard all of this has been on his father, Jacob. That's the end of chapter 44. Jake, Joseph clearly still adores his father. And as we see at the end of the story, the last few verses we read in chapter 45, Jacob never stopped longing for his son. These men, these brothers will see the one who is saving their lives is the very one whom they esteemed not, to put it in Isaiah 53 terms. The one they wounded would not wound them in return. The one who could have condemned them will be gracious to them. They have nothing to give him. He has everything to give them. What these brothers are being shown here is the kind of grace you and I get in Jesus. My Bible reading this week had me in 1 Timothy, if you follow the McShane calendar, some of you do, you've been in 1 Timothy with me this week, among other places. And reading this passage in 1 Timothy, I was struck again by the way Paul articulates in 1 Timothy chapter 1 how Jesus overwhelmed him. And I was struck by it this week in particular because... Last weekend, out of town, I had a, a conversation at, a, at an event there, a function we were, we were at last Sunday. Uh, I met a man uh, whose daughter is in my daughter's sorority. This was a, a parent lunch, and we were seated at a table, didn't know the couple. 
Uh, but um, we got in, uh, I'm a preacher, and so we talk about Jesus at some point, right? I mean, you know, uh, it has to happen. And uh, this man was uh, not a believer, and he said, you know, I like Jesus, but Paul? And then he kind of pursed his lips and went, hmm. But listen to Paul here in 1 Timothy. I don't know that my new friend has ever really pondered this. This is 1 Timothy 1. I'll just read it to you. Just listen. Paul's words, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me is the foremost. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You realize that Joseph's brothers, these guys in the latter part of Genesis, they are in the Old Testament the foremost examples of what saving patience looks like. And Joseph's patience wasn't perfect patience like Jesus shows, but the brothers are examples of what we're all like in front of Jesus who took on flesh just as we have, but we esteemed him not. We wounded him deliberately, willingly. And yet with all that power that the Son of God has, he has not been vindictive to us, but gracious. Gospel echoes reverberate all around this story in Genesis 45. And with that in mind, our gospel, there are two takeaways that I want us to see here in Genesis 45. First, we'll talk about the use of power to reconcile. And then second, the use of forgiveness to heal. That's what we see in this story, the use of power to reconcile. Power is often, certainly in the modern era, is often used to divide. But here in this story, we see someone using their unprecedented power to reconcile. And then we'll also see the use of forgiveness to heal. So first, the use of power to reconcile. Who is Joseph at this point? Well, before he reveals himself to his brothers, he, he is power incarnate. He is Egypt. I mean, his presence would have been terrifying. He would have been in the most ornate place in the ancient world. He would have looked the, the Egyptian part with the, the headdress and the, and the beard that kind of uh, is braided down and the, and the, you know, the eyeliner that, that draws the, the stripes here. And he would have been fit. And he would have had all these servants and probably some animals around on chains and such. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying place to stand before. This is Joseph, power incarnate. And the brothers, they have already bowed before him, <laughs> just as was prophesied when Joseph was 17 would happen. But there's all this grace from him as well. There's all this grace in him. And the reason is Joseph belongs more to God than to Egypt. If his Egyptian power, if the power of Egypt was something Joseph flaunted, then his brothers had no chance. But Joseph is someone who flourishes in the grace of God 
And when you flourish in the grace of God, you do not have to flaunt your power. He used his power, his unparalleled power. He used it not to punish his brothers, but to to reconcile them to himself. You say, you know, that takes a a really big man. You know, in actuality, it takes a God-man. And such is Joseph here. He's, He's not God incarnate, of course not, but he is Jesus to his brothers. He has the power to condemn them. He has the power to humiliate them. He has the power to execute them. But what his brothers needed most, and Joseph knew this, more than survival grain to to outlast this famine that's two years in and has five years left, what they needed most was his personal forgiveness of them. And the only one who really has the power to do that, to forgive, is the one who sinned against. I mean, let's say I take up the offense of a friend. I've got good friends. And one of them is, is done wrongly, and, and I take up his offense, <clears throat> and I get mad, and, and, and then later I go to the one who wronged my friend and say, uh, I forgive you what you, you did to him. And that means I won't hold their wrong against my friend against them any longer, but unless my friend forgives them, my act of grace is more or less a gesture. For it to be grace in power... The one wronged has to forgive. And yes, we all know of situations where someone offers forgiveness to someone who wronged them only to hear some sort of pushback. I don't need that from you. I don't need your forgiveness. Thank you very much. You know, the person who uh, wronged you won't own what they did to you, not interested in reconciling. Sometimes that happens. And that, that can hurt as, as much as the, uh, the, the original fault. But Joseph, from an unbelievable height of power, humbles himself in forgiving his brothers. And this is the coupling that we don't often see. Don't miss the humility in this. The humility power draws upon to reconcile. John Dixon's little book, John Dixon was a, uh, for many years uh, an Anglican uh, a priest in Sydney, Australia. By the way, he has an excellent podcast. If you're into podcasting and you like podcasts, John Dixon's Undeceptions is fantastic. It comes out every week. Uh, he has a melodious Australian accent, and he takes on uh, various things. Really good. But he wrote a book called Humilitas. That's the uh, Latin form of, uh, of humility, a lost key to life, love, and leadership. And he helped me get a better grasp on the coupling between power and humility. Listen to what he says. Dixon says humility, humility is a choice to forego your status and use your resources, your influence, your power for the good of others before yourself. Now, where do you get that? Because that's not how we think about humility. Well, the origin of the word humble means lowering from a height. And that's why Dixon says, humility is a choice to forego your status and use your power for the good of others before yourself. But we don't think about it this way. We almost exclusively, if we took a survey of the room, I'm almost uh, certain 
that what we would return back is a, is a heavy idea of humility as an exercise in self-deprecation, you know, where I eliminate proud thoughts, I refuse to talk about my achievements, that's, uh, that's really humble. That, in actuality, that's modesty. Humility classically was understood to be lowering oneself from a height. And this wasn't a value in Roman times, by the way. Why John Dixon writes about humility, how it, because it, it, it's something the Christians emphasized in the Lord Jesus, there was no, nobody like Jesus. No ruler, certainly no God, ever condescended. They could be condescending, but they would not themselves step down. This is what made Jesus completely unique. That's why the ancient hymn in Philippians 2 that we know so well says Jesus humbled himself, though he was in nature God. We're meant to stand amazed at that because no Roman gods did that. Certainly no Egypt, uh, Egyptian gods did that. Jesus had no proud thoughts to give up, but he did have unbelievable power. And for a time during his life among us, his incarnation, he gave up the status of that power, becoming poor for our sake so that in him we might become rich in every spiritual blessing. Humility is the right use of power to give what is needed, to put someone's interests and needs before your own, but you're in the power spot. You don't have to do that. That's precisely what we see Joseph doing with his brothers here. He's lowering self, himself from a height to get down to their level in order to bring them close to him and in so doing to close that couple of decades old relational gaping hole when we remember what they did to him. Let me ask you a question. How do we know God is good? I mean, how do we know that? Do you know that he's good? Would you say he's good? How do we know God is good? A lot of times we, we, our reflex is to say, well, we count our blessings. But it's got to be more than, than just, um, you know, blessings received and, and he kept this hard thing from me or he got me through that one. And, and we thank him for that as we should. But the way to know God is good is, is you accept what he offers you. And what he offers us is no condemnation, forgiveness for everything that, that separates us from him, whether it's unrighteous, whether it's self-righteous, whether it's a combination of all of the above. And that's how you know that he's good. It's not in whether he prospers us or not, uh, keeps hard things from us or not. I mean, we thank him for that as we should. I'm not saying we don't, but how we know God is good is he humbled himself to the point of death in the most heinous way imaginable. He used his power graciously on our behalf to forgive us of everything we have done that has vandalized his way and his will in the world. He uses his power to reconcile us to him. He doesn't have to do that. And we pick up that frequency, which is really being beamed out from all of Scripture, but, but, but here's, a, here's a location 
in Genesis 45. This passage, what Joseph does, it really takes us to Jesus. And the, and the reconciliation that we get from him, apart from which, just speaking for me, I wouldn't forgive anybody. I mean, it's the context of forgiving his brothers. I would be the most vindictive person around apart from Christ. I'm, I'm sorry to say that. I know I would be, though it's, it's honest. I have to admit it. I, I'm a lousy forgiver now, knowing him. But I stay at it. And the reason I stay at it is because of him. We say, we open our Bibles to Genesis 4 5, we go, look at Joseph. Let's be as gracious and forgiving as he was. But there's a greater Joseph. See, it, it doesn't just take a big man to do what Joseph does, it takes a God man. And if not for him, the greater Joseph, this Joseph, here in Genesis 45, would at some level depress me if I had to, on my own, be like he is and do what he did. Because I, the way I naturally am, I think the way a lot of us naturally are, we don't want to forgive these brothers. They don't deserve forgiveness. They deserve humiliation at least, if not worse. We don't want Joseph doing this unless something happens to us that causes us to embrace Joseph in this act and be glad for his brothers receiving this, to want this for them. And that's Jesus' greater act on our behalf. That's the only thing it is. It has to so fill your heart and take you over. Or what will happen, particularly for somebody like me, and, and I'm sure a lot of us are the same way, you will live by your own fairness doctrine in which you will permit yourself any grudge you want to keep, but every grudge you keep becomes an enslaver, every one of them. Minor, major. What if Joseph, with all of his power, think about this, that people call this irony today. It's actually not irony, but it's become irony because of the way we use the word. Just let that go. Um, that's an English joke. What if with all his power, he had not been Jesus to his brothers, but acted to them as comes natural to a lot of us? He would have been enslaved. The most powerful man in the world would have been a slave. The use of power to reconcile. Second, the use of forgiveness to heal. And this takes us back to Jacob, Joseph's father. We read the last section of this story, verses 25 to 28, when the sons return home and they say to Jacob, Joseph is alive. And the way the text is written, Jacob literally almost has a stroke. I mean, to think your son is dead and to grieve him for, at this point, over 20 years, and to miss him and to long for him, and then to hear, not only is he not dead, but, <laughs> Dad, look outside. Look at the wagons. Look at the Egyptian servants out there. Look at the crests. It's all for you, Dad. It's from Joseph. It's all for you. 
It's more than an old man's heart can take. And yet this man's heart for his son, it is beautiful. This is beautiful. You know, a few weeks ago when we were looking at Jacob's life, I warned us about loving the right things the wrong ways. This is when we were looking at Jacob. And we talked about how idolatries of the heart form from this and, and how Jacob seemed to make Joseph the center of his world back when Joseph was 17 and he gave him the, the multicolored garment, you know, and, and therefore when Joseph was thought to be dead, Jacob acts like there's nothing to live for, though he's got this, this incredible blessing from God and yet he doesn't want to live. He, he, lo- he kind of loses the will to, to, to live. And yes, there's a, there's a warning to heed in that about uh, idolatries of the heart, but there's also a humanness in this that we can't fault. I mean, you have to be hard-hearted to fault Jacob here. The man loved his son, and the son loved his father. There's a lot of ache in longing. Jacob knew it. I, I know it in my own right. A lot of you do too with kids. You're still waiting on to come home from the far country. But there's also a lot of beauty in longing. In how longing preserves memory, like nothing else. Intensifies memory even. Christopher Walken, he's an actor. Three years ago, uh, he posted to Facebook, um, not on Facebook, Lynn is, and, and so I can access it through her account, but three years ago this month, I don't know if he wrote these words uh, or if he was quoting something he read. Either way, it doesn't matter. Uh, those of you who like to, you know, uh, proof my sermons, you don't need to go look this up for me uh, and send me an email. It's quite okay. I tried to research this a bit and I could only find it attributed to him. But apparently these are Christopher Walken's words. I don't care who they come from. I don't care if they come from the Dalai Lama. Uh, This is an incredible perspective and I think it hits at what we've got at the end of Genesis 45. Someday you will be faced with the reality of loss. And as life goes on, days rolling into nights, it will become clear that you never really stop missing someone special who's gone. You just learn to live around the gaping hole of their absence. When you lose someone you can't imagine living without, your heart breaks wide open. And the bad news is you never completely get over the loss. You will never forget them. However, in a backwards way, this is also the good news. They will live on in the warmth of your broken heart that doesn't fully heal back up. And you will continue to grow and experience life even with your wound. It's like badly breaking an ankle that never heals perfectly and that still hurts when you dance, but you dance anyway with a slight limp. And this limp just adds to the depth of your performance and the authenticity of your character. Now we know Jacob already had a limp. We remember the wrestling match back in chapter 32. Joseph grew up with his father limping everywhere they went. But Joseph also knew he would see him again Jacob was going to see Joseph again. And his sons, I mean, the beauty of the gospel is the very people who've done the most damage to God become the witnesses to tell others. 
the very people responsible for Jacob's pain and Joseph's pain, these brothers, get to be the heralds of the good news. They get to be the ones to go back and tell Jacob because Joseph forgave them and sent them to tell their dad his broken heart could experience some healing. That healing Jacob got to experience emerged from one son forgiving his other sons. It doesn't take away the lost years. It does not make them okay. It makes them things behind us. Joseph was before him now. Jacob would go to him practically dancing all the way. You know the old guy had to be giddy. The use of forgiveness to heal. Healing doesn't mean you won't still have your limp. Healing means you can still move. You won't be incapacitated by it. You won't be fixated upon it. You never completely get over the loss of someone you love. Christopher Walken is quite right about that. And I don't, I don't, listen, I don't know why Jacob and Joseph's story has to go like it does. I mean, some people read these stories and they go, I just don't get it. Why does it have to be that dramatic? You know, I mean, why does God let it unfold like this? Why does God let Joseph go to prison 14 years for something he didn't do? Why does he even let him get sold into slavery to begin with? And we'll get into that a little bit next week in chapter 50. I don't know why their story had to go like this, except I do know this. God lives a similar story. God puts himself in the same story. For all practical purposes, God is willing to live much the same narrative in subjecting himself to loss at our hands and yet reaching out to us to make us his own and and giving something precious to us, his own son who saves we who caused his suffering and then even to send us to others for them to know there's a savior of us all. It's beautiful. The gospel is beautiful. And the gospel echoes reverberate around this story. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he's the ruler over all the land. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And then we'll sing and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for how everything beautiful in Scripture is a reflection and an anticipation of the beauty we find in Jesus. Thank you for this story and for how we can locate the Savior in it, not because we impose him upon it, but because especially this is one of these places Or when Paul said everything written in the past was written to teach us so that by encouragement, endurance, this is one of those places for sure. And we thank you for it and the ability to look at it this morning. Thank you for how every portion of Scripture, whether it's the ugliest, harshest text that shows human sinfulness and all its worstness, or a passage like this one that treks along with a greater story that we've gotten in on 
And as the offenders, as the ones who should have been sent away, or worse, Lord, even if you ignored us, that would be terrible. But we're told that you'll condemn us if we don't know your son. Your son is who you prize most of all. And we thank you that though he came and he died, he was, he was raised so that we can have justification, so that we don't have to cling to our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness and all of it, so that we can look to you and be healed no matter what it is we carry, no matter what it is that keeps us awake at night or makes us uh, cry during the day. We thank you for your kindness and your tenderness with us. As seen in Joseph, who is uh, standing in ahead of time for one who would occupy that place with the most power and the most grace. We thank you for him being our Savior. In his name, amen.